Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We'll be looking at the covenant of David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'll be reading from the ESV translation. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the word of the Lord. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do that is all in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart of men. Amen. Some of you may have heard this story many years ago of the McQuilkin family. Uh, There was a couple by the name of Robertson, and uh, her name was Myrtle, or Muriel uh, McQuilkin. And this was a couple who met in college at Columbia International University. Uh, They were sitting in a classroom together, and Robertson was smitten over uh, over this beautiful brunette girl. And after class, he approached her and just got to know her, and sure enough, months go by, and the two of them get engaged, and they get married. Well, for about 30 years, the McQuilkin couple uh, was, was really strong. They had six kids. They were missionaries in Japan, and then they were called back to Columbia International University uh, to work where Robertson was the president, and his wife, Muriel, was a women's speaker. Uh, she wrote books, and she also spoke at women's conferences, and she even had a radio show and six kids. The woman was extremely busy. Well, after about 30 years of marriage, they were around 48, 50 years old, and after a conference, Muriel uh, and, and Robertson were driving back home, and she ended up telling a story, 
And then about five minutes goes by and she repeats the story and tells the story again. And Robertson said, well, that's kind of odd. My wife has never done that before. And sure enough, weeks go by and she begins to repeat herself more often. So they end up taking Muriel to see the doctor and she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's at a very, very young age. Robertson was shocked because his, his young wife had Alzheimer's. Well, time went on and it got more and more difficult. Uh, Muriel ended up having to, uh, to, to deny and, and say no to many of her, her speaking engagements and then she had to completely give it up and then she even gave up her radio show. And the only thing that she really ended up remembering was her kids and her husband to an extent. And, and the words that she would say towards the end of her life was, I love you or love, love, love. Those were the words that, that she could say. It got so bad that it got to a point for Robertson in his career where he had to make a decision. Do I continue being president of the seminary because they need me 100% or do I retire early and be with my wife because she needs me 100%? And this is what he said when he made a statement to the staff and to the students of Columbia International University. The decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it, but so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years, if I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic, but there is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. I don't have to care for her. I get to care for her. It is a high honor to care for such a wonderful person. As years went on, people would ask him, Robertson, uh, how, how are you? Do you ever get tired of caring for Muriel? And he would say, no, I love to care for her. She's my precious. And then at the end of her life, he wrote these words and a letter to his friends. For 55 years, Muriel was flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. So it's like a ripping of my flesh and deeper my very bones. But there's also profound gratitude. For 10 years, I've delighted in recalling happy memories. I still do, no regrets, I'm grateful. I share with you this story because Robertson and Muriel both made a commitment till death do them part. They made a vow to each other when they got married in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, for richer, for poorer, from sickness and health, I will be committed to you till death do us part. And they really held true to their vows, even when the going got tough, even when it was difficult. It's a great example of what a true commitment and a true vow is. And I bring this up because in a very similar way, God has made many, many promises and many covenants and commitments to his people throughout scripture and even to us today. And God always keeps his word. No matter what happens to us, he always keeps his word. He never breaks his promises and he never forgets his promises. And that's what this sermon series has been all about. Covenants, 
God makes a covenant oath, promise, agreement with his people that he always intends to keep. No matter what we do, God will keep his word, always. And what we see in this covenant that God made with David is three things about God. We know that God is an ever-present, grace-giving, and he is a promise-keeping God. The first thing we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is that God is an ever-present God. Just to give you a brief context of what's going on in 2 Samuel 7, just a few chapters earlier, we learned that David finally became king over God's people over Israel. He defeated the enemy Philistines. He ends up recovering the Ark of the Covenant, which symboled that of God's presence among his people. He found the Ark from the Philistines. He defeated the Philistines. Then he he brought the Ark of the Covenant to the city of Jerusalem where he made the city of God, the holy city of God. And he made that the permanent place where God's presence would dwell on this earth, the city of Jerusalem. And right after all this took place, we we read in the first few verses of chapter seven that God gave David peace. Finally, David through most of his adult life was fighting war after war after war. And now God had given David peace. And while David, I assume, was up on the rooftop of his palace, he's looking around and he's saying, all these things God has given me. He's given me this beautiful palace, but yet... God doesn't have a temple to dwell. He doesn't have a house or a palace to dwell in. And here I am enjoying the palace that he's given me. So I need to make and build him a house or a temple. You see, what's interesting, you may not know this, but in the context of David's day, uh, the the, the non-believers, the foreign kings of the day, whenever they would experience a victory, they would make a temple or a house in honor of their gods for giving them victory. This was a common theme that kings would do in that day. David knew this, and he said, God has given me victory after victory. Here I am in this beautiful palace. I need to build God a temple. I want to build God a house. And so he goes to his pastor, Nathan, or his prophet, Nathan, and he said, Nathan, I have an idea I want to share with you. I I feel called to build a big temple for God. And of course, Nathan, being the prophet, saying, Cha-ching, absolutely. (laughs) If you fund this project, yeah, we can build this temple for God. I'll run it. It'll be great. He said, go for it. Well, just a few hours pass, and God changes the plan. He gives Nathan a word and a vision, and he says, Nathan, I want the construction project to halt. I want it to stop because I don't need David to build me a house because my presence has been with David and with my people since the beginning. I'm always dwelling and ever-present with my people. And that's exactly what he mentioned in 2 Samuel 7, verse 6. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God is saying, in all those days, did I ever once ask the leaders of God's people, why haven't you built me a house? He said, no, I never expected that. I never asked you to build me a temple because I'm always with you. I'm always with you. And God reminded David through Nathan that remember all the times I was with my people? Remember when they were in Egypt in slavery? I was right there with them. Remember when they went through the wilderness? I was right there with them. Remember when they walked through the Red Sea? 
I was right there with them. Remember when they went to Mount Sinai and we gave, uh, and I gave God's people my law? I was right there with them. And then he goes on to say, David, remember the times when I was with you? Battle after battle after battle, verse nine, I've been with you wherever you went and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. God is saying, my presence has always been with you. I am an ever-present God. I am always dwelling with, you, with, with my people. I don't need a palace to dwell in. What this tells me is that we have a God who is not only ever-present with us, but he is willing and he wants to be with us. God wants to be with his people and he is with us. You know what this made me think about? It made me think about parenting. And what a joy it is to be a parent. I, I, I not only am willing to be with my kids, but I want to be with my kids. From when they were born to when, they, when I have to change diapers to when they go to school, to when they graduate, to when they get married, to when they have kids. These are all things I'm looking forward to, but I'm excited to, to be ever present with them. It's an honor and a privilege to be with them. You know, it's really funny. Uh, Stephanie and I, we have a paper, rock, scissors game whenever our kids hit a birthday because we know they're gonna have to do their annual doctor visit. And when they do the annual doctor visit, it's like World War III happens because shots and blood drawn takes place where they prick your finger. And our kids always get seared. I'm just kidding. We actually don't do paper, rock, scissors. You know, I'm the one that goes every year. And it's funny because every time this happens, the doctor sees me and says, I know why you're here. I said, yeah, yeah, I'm the designated one to go and to be with the kids when they have to go through World War III and the shots. And it is terrifying for our kids, terrifying. I mean, they, they, they scream, and just like any of us did when we were kids, you get scared with shots and needles, and, and then afterwards, it's not so bad. And you realize, well, that wasn't so bad. But you know what, what I find interesting is, is I'm in the room with them when it takes place, and the screaming takes place and all that, but they still look to make sure I'm there and I'm with them. Right? And there are even times where I'll sit next to them or I'll make sure their sibling sits next to them so there's somebody ever present there with them. But I'll tell you, I actually enjoy going. <laughs> it's hard to see my kids going through this, but at the same time, I like being there with them when they're going through such trauma. It's a privilege. It's a joy to be a parent when you're with your kid through hard times and through good times. In the same way, God wants and is willing to be with us, his children. He loves us and he, he is ever present with us. And so my question to you this morning is, when was the last time you actually thought about God being near to you? When was the last time you thought about God being near to you? Some of you, you might be so busy you don't stop and think about this. But God is right there with you. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you're dealing with, he's right there with you. And so you may have just experienced a harsh breakup or a divorce. You may have gotten some really hard news from the doctor recently or your employer. You may be dealing with loneliness or even depression. If that's you, I wanna remind you of Psalm 34, 18, when God said, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. God is close to you when you're feeling broken and he intends to save you when you're feeling crushed in spirit. 
Some of you may be dealing with an ongoing temptation, or you might be in a really dry season spiritually. You might be in a valley right now spiritually. You might be doubting your faith. You might be wondering if, if God really is there. Well, I want to remind you of Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even though you may be in a dark valley right now, God is with you. He is ever-present. Some of you might just be exhausted. You might be burning both ends of the candle. You might be tired and weary, wondering if it will ever stop. God tells you in Jeremiah 31, 25, I will refresh the weary and I will satisfy the faint. I will refresh you, those of you who are weary and tired, and I will satisfy you as you're feeling faint. These are promises that God gives to us that he is ever-present, that he is with us. He is an ever-present God. The second thing we see in the covenant of David is that God is a grace-giving God. Verses seven through 11, God just gives example after example to David of how he has shown his grace to David and to his people. He took David from tending sheep to become ruler over his people. He cut off all the enemies from David. He was going to make David's name great, just like the great ones of the earth. He was going to appoint a place for his people Israel and plant them so that they would have a place. Very similarly, did he promise Abraham, I'm going to give you a land and a people. Now fast forward many hundred years later and he's saying to David the same thing. I have made you king over people and I've given you this land of Jerusalem. God is a God of grace. He dispenses his grace to his people. He gives his grace to his people. And that's what this covenant series is all about. It's a storyline of God being gracious to his people. A story of how God said, I'm going to make a covenant of grace with you, my people. And in the covenant of grace, we have seen all these sub-covenants that are a part of the bigger covenant of grace, the sub-covenants with Noah and with, with, with Abraham and Moses and now David. And what we saw with the, the three prominent figures of the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, and David, is that God essentially showed his grace to all three of them. With Abraham, he said, Abraham, I'm calling you out of this foreign land when you were believing in a foreign God, and I'm gonna make you into a great nation. I'm gonna give you and your descendants a great land. And then with Moses, he rescued Moses when, when Moses was a baby. Moses was about to be slaughtered to death. He rescued Moses, and then Moses made a terrible mistake by killing someone, and he went in isolation. God brought him from isolation and said, you're gonna be my my chosen one to mediate for, for, for my people. And then God gave Moses and his people the law to guide them. And now we get to David and God is saying, this covenant of grace is extending to you, David, because out of your line will be a king of all kings, a king that will rule forever. And your throne will be established forever. And so there will always be a king over my people and it will come from your line. You see here, God is a grace-giving God. And as you reflect upon your own life, let me just remind all of you this morning is that you wouldn't be here if it weren't for the grace of God. It is only by the grace of God that we go. Because as you go through the Bible, you see God initiating a relationship with his people. And he says, all right, here's the agreement. Just keep your end of the bargain. I'll always keep mine. And every single time, 
God's people didn't keep their end of the agreement. But what did God do? He kept his end of the agreement because he always does. And then he not only keeps his end, but he forgives his people time and time and time again. God forgives you and me time and time and time again. That's grace. That is unconditional love. None of us deserve it. But that's what makes Christianity so special is because God is a God of grace. I've heard it said before, and I've said it before, cheer up, you're far more of a sinner than you ever imagined, but you are far more loved than you ever dared to dream. Even though you are a sinner more than you can imagine, you are far more loved than you ever thought possible. That's the grace of God, and he is a grace-giving God, and he wanted David to remember that as he's making covenant with him. The third thing we see about God in this covenant is that God is also a promise-keeping God. Verse 11, he said, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. What's interesting here is there's a play on words. At the beginning of this chapter, David said, Hey, I want to build God a house. And God said, No, I don't want you to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. But the house that God was referring to was not a literal house. He was referring to that of a dynasty. He's saying, David, I promise you that I'm going to build a dynasty when I, when I think about dynasty, I think about a number of things. I think about March Madness right now, and I think about all the sports dynasties of the day. I think about Coach K, how this is his last year at Duke, and he's really created a dynasty at Duke. Will that dynasty continue on? We'll see. You think about John Wooden, the great coach of UCLA, a dynasty there. I also think about dynasties when it comes to nations and kingdoms. I, I, I think about England. I think about the, the Tudor family and the Stuarts and the Victorians, and the, the Georgians. I think about the, the, Egypt, the Egyptian dynasties. I think about the Chinese dynasties, these big kingdoms of, of kings and queens that, that take on for a long, long time. In the same way, God is saying to David, I'm building you this dynasty that will last forever. But most dynasties you think about, whether it's sports or whether it's nations, they come and go. Coach K is going to retire. Duke will probably be good, I would imagine, but they probably won't be as good as when Coach K was around. You know, what happens when that, when that happen, what happens when a, a coach retires? Well, oftentimes it takes a while for the team to rebuild. What happens when a king or a queen dies? Well, it might take a while for that dynasty to continue, especially if they don't have an offspring, if they don't have a successor. That dynasty will die. Or if an outside enemy defeats them, that dynasty will die and fall. What God promised David here is that you will have a forever dynasty that will not crumble, that will not fall. It will hold true and hold strong forever. You know, I did some homework this week on dynasties, and very rarely does a dynasty last more than 400 years. In fact, one of the few ones that has is this one right here, David. And what's interesting here is he, God promised David that out of his line, Solomon would come and really continue and build upon this dynasty. Verse, thir, verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What God is saying here is, out of your line, David, this dynasty will continue on, 
And his name is Solomon. And by the way, he's the one that's gonna build me a palace. He's gonna build me a temple. He's gonna live in a time of peace where you lived in a time of war. So he's gonna build this temple where I'm gonna fully dwell on this earth, my central dwelling place on this earth. And then Solomon will continue building upon your kingdom that you built. That's a promise that God intended to keep. But here's the thing that God continued to say in verse 14. He said, when Solomon commits sin, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Right here, God told David, when Solomon comes, he's gonna continue on building this dynasty, this legacy that you started as king. But when he sins against me, there will be discipline. There will be punishment. And it will be hard for Solomon. However, because I'm a promise-keeping God, I will always keep my word. And that throne will still continue despite Solomon and his son's wickedness. You know, it's amazing as you continue reading through the Old Testament, you'll find that for 400 years, David's throne continued on with one of his sons or grandsons or ancestors. And as you read through 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, you will find very quickly that all these kings had some kind of sin that they struggled with and they disobeyed God in many, many ways. But God was faithful to his promise and he kept his promise for 400 years. But things got so bad that in 586 BC, God took his people away from their land and he removed the throne from his people. At that time in history, I would imagine it was very bleak and very sad because if you were living in that time, I guarantee you would have probably reflected back on that promise and said, wait, God, you said that David's throne would always be, but yet there's no king right now that's reigning over us. Over 500 years, they were without a king. So it would appear, as you read through the Bible, that this is the first time where God broke his promise. You would think that if you were living in those days. You would think that until a prophet named Amos would come to you and tell you these words. In that day, I will rise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up his ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. These words from the prophet Amos came to God's people when they're discouraged and they're thinking to themselves, God broke his promise to us. There's no king. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Amos comes in the scene and he says, nope, God is a promise-keeping God and he intends to fulfill his promise. And one day, that kingdom will be restored. When you get to Matthew chapter one, verse one, what's that say? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The very first words of the New Testament, all about Jesus Christ, is saying, Jesus is here, the king, the king is here, and he is the son of David. As you read through the New Testament, you will quickly find that there is no one like Jesus. 
Jesus is God. He's the true king. He is indeed the king of all kings. And so at this time in history, when God's people saw Jesus, and when they understood that the prophecies were about him, they realized, here is the king. He has established his throne forever. He's coming from the line of David. God is a promise-keeping God through this man, through this God-man, Jesus Christ. You know, next week, we finish out this sermon series, Covenants, and we're gonna look at the grand finale of them all, the covenant of Jesus Christ. And it's found in the Old Testament. And so I want you to hang on to your seats. I want you to stay tuned because the story continues on. And we'll wrap up next week with the grand story of them all.